Hey everybody, quick intro on this particular episode of the podcast. You're going to find that the audio isn't as good with this particular interview. And the reason is because I actually shot it as a video interview back in 2013. I, I flew out to LA to interview Matthew Harrison, uh, one of my favorite filmmakers. And I didn't have the ability to bring all of the gear with me that I might typically use in a video interview. I could basically... Uh, have a camera and unfortunately the bag was so small I couldn't bring all my mic equipment with me so I, I made a conscious effort to do some noise removal on this particular audio track uh, but again it's not perfect it is an archival interview which I'm putting up simply because I think it's useful and I think it fits the theme of this particular podcast so uh, this was recorded in Matthew Harrison's home in Santa Monica, California in December of 2012, and it was initially released on YouTube in January of 2013. And now I am re-releasing it on this podcast in audio form in 2020. Thanks, everybody. My name is Matthew Harrison, and I'm a filmmaker. I started in... Uh, I think I made my first films in 1968-69 in the New York City public school system. That's how I got my start. I was in a terrific school called PS41, which is still there. And I had a great teacher there named Jerry Goldstein, who was part of his curriculum. It was an experimental class, which they were doing in the 60s. And uh, he had us making films. He had a couple of brownie no, they were Revere, I think, little wind-ups. And uh, we would shoot regular eight, black and white, the kind where it's one spool and you shoot 25 feet and then you open it up and flip it over and shoot it 25 feet down the other side of the 16. And when you send it to the lab, they develop it and then they slit it down the middle and turn one around and stick it on. So right in the middle of your movie, your whole your film would start to, to, to go white and then they would be a splice, and then it was the image would start to reappear. Yeah, this is a very interesting book. In fact, it's giving me an idea. I am going to create a monster of my own. Yes. I remember I was tapped in the class to be the director of the class project, which was the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So I. I was, I was pretty excited. I mean, that's a big deal for a fifth grader to be given that responsibility because one of the things we did was we had our principal, Irving Kreitzberg, dress up as Nero. We had a sheet wrapped around him. He played the fiddle. And then we wound the film back and shot some fire so you could see. Uh, Irving Kreitzberg was a really gentle person, so, you know. But uh, years later, I realized that's pretty funny that we got our principal to do that. What happened to my money? What? I've been pickpocketed. Quick. Hey, Mr. Detective, you got to help me. Some guy stole my money. I'll get him. Don't worry. Hey, there he is. Take that, you private detective, you. Hey, mister, you got my money. The first one I did was called The Ripoff, and it was a story about... I made it with my brother, Ben Harrison, and two friends of ours, Rick and Andy Parker, and our idea was that, that Rick gets, gets mugged because 
getting mugged was a big topic of conversation in the late 60s in Manhattan. And uh, so, of course, that captured our imagination. We got an idea that, that our main character gets mugged, and he goes and hires a private detective to find the mugger and get the money back, which he does. Uh, and the, the private detective accosts the mugger, but the mugger beats him up. But then the mugger urinates in public and is arrested by the police. So he gets his comeuppance in the end. That was our idea. It was an ironic ending. I'm just adjusting the tape recorder inside him. Now I gotta shoot him with some liquid of some kind. Perhaps I can slip him a pill, and he'll eat it, and that will end this nightmare that I've created. We also made some splatter films and some ultra-violent films. Somehow we managed to sneak in to see Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Peck and Paw. And so we were determined to make a, uh, a film with a lot of guns and a lot of blood. So we, I directed a picture called The Kitty Massacre where basically these two gangsters just blow away this gang of little kids. Uh, and that was a big deal because we purchased our own um, props, our own special effects gear. We went and bought a bottle of ketchup. You know, and when you're like 11, that's kind of a big deal to think that far in advance. beautifully made, man. They just used to make them so nicely. So the first films I was making were on um, regular 8mm cameras, and the one that I used to use was very similar to this. It's a Revere 8, and they were nice cameras that were wind up. They didn't require a battery. It was a real pleasure to use them, and the way it worked was it was one spool of 16mm film, and you'd thread it in here and it was a 25 foot spool and so you'd run it through to the end and then you'd open this up and you'd reverse the reels, flip it over and you'd shoot down the other side of the film and that would um, expose the entire roll and then you'd send that to the lab and the lab would take the roll, develop it and then they'd slit the film down the middle, flip around the other end, splice it on. I was shooting films all the way through the 70s at junior high school. The idea of going to film school had not occurred to me. It, it wasn't as available in those days as it is now. What I did was I went to art school. I went to a Cooper Union School of Art. And at Cooper Union, I started shooting 16mm films. I was still shooting Super 8. But Cooper Union, the, the filmmaking at art school was very different. It was experimental filmmaking. And uh, I had a terrific teacher named Robert Breer, and our focus was much more on image and how images work. And it was wasn't really about storytelling in the traditional sense. At art school, it was much more about how storytelling happens in a more, uh, I guess, subconscious way through images and sound. And uh, that was actually a great education for me, working that way. So it meant that really for four years I didn't do any narrative filmmaking. When you go to 16, the gauge is twice the width of 8mm. It's a very narrow width film, eight, Super 8. Um, 16 is a big jump. And uh, it's considered more professional. 
Like when I directed Sex in the City, we shot it on 16 millimeter. I moved out to LA for a year. And I was working as a advertising designer, but um, it didn't. I found it didn't really inspire me living here at that time. And the uh, early 80s art scene was beginning in New York City, and so a lot of my friends in the East Village were doing really interesting things. And I went back to New York. And when I got back to New York, I changed the technology game. I, I re-upped the technology and I went and I purchased a Sync Sound Super 8 camera. Because in the early 80s, they were building these beautiful cameras where you could shoot Sync Sound on color Super 8. And I got back to my narrative filmmaking. Uh, in 1985, I founded Film Crash, which is my company in a screening series. And I currently run it with two, my two partners, Carl Nussbaum and Scott Saunders. started on a project called Apartment 8, which I did with Michael Kanicki from the Rave Ups. A good actor, great songwriter, great singer. And um, a theater director named Bob McGrath, who's also trained as an actor. And the two of us set out to make a film that really showed what it was like as a the new wave of like downwardly mobile white guys who were like moving in to the Lower East Side which at the time was mostly Hispanic and still really is. We wanted to show what it was like during that period of history in New York to live there. Apartment 8 was the first picture I made that I, it occurred to me that I could submit it to film festivals because um, they really weren't part of my world. They really weren't part of the kind of filmmaking world downtown in the East Village and the Lower East Side. Uh, it was kind of a complete world for us. Everything from the making of the films to the screening of the film. Tessa Freeland and Ella Troiano were running a really great festival in downtown New York in those days called New York Film Festival Downtown. Uh, they don't run it anymore, but for a number of years it really was the festival of record for downtown, like underground, experimental, alternative, independent American film, uh, New York filmmaking. Everybody who's anybody in the downtown Scenes film was in that festival. So when you look at their programs, it's like a who's who of, uh, of all the people. And they said, we'd love to program your film. And, and uh, it ended up winning the best prize for best film at the festival, which was shocking to me. I mean, I was pretty young. I think I was 27. In those days, there was no internet. Um... So it was a bit of a it was a bit of a trick to find out about festivals. Um, there was one place called um, what was it called AI AIVF. It was on Broadway, the Association of Independent Video and Filmmakers. And in their little office, they had a little library. And in their little library, they had a, a compilation of film festivals that they used to keep. And um, I would go over there, and they had a coffee table. And they'd give, I'd get that book off the shelf and sit down with a notepad and I would just write down all the festivals that sounded interesting. I think fax machines hadn't even started yet and VHS hadn't happened yet. So to submit, you actually had to send the print. 
So I had one print. I had the original, and then Kodak had struck one print of the film for me, so I could mail that away. So it really meant you could only apply to one festival at a time. After I won that prize at downtown, I, I, was, I was encouraged, and I got in touch with the Ann Arbor Film Festival, who used to show Super 8 films, and sent the film off there, and, and lo and behold, it won. It won a prize there. So that Apartment 8's a key, a key film for me. I set out to make my first feature film, which I co-wrote with my good friend Christopher Grimm. We chose a story that was kind of a hybrid story. It was a combination of a comedy, and it was a very tongue-in-cheek film noir called Spare Me. It was a bowling thriller. For the choice of a first feature, it was perhaps not the best choice because it was complicated and it was a hybrid. So you had to kind of get a lot of things at the same time in order to enjoy the film. We shot it in color, Super 16. Then I spent about another 40000 post-producing it. So it ended up being about an $80,000 feature. And I finished that film. Original music by Danny Brenner and Hugh O'Donovan. Beautiful soundtrack. I just couldn't get arrested with that film. Could not get arrested. I remember submitting it to all these American festivals and the crazy thing that happened with Spare Me is it started getting accepted to festivals in Florida. And I didn't know why this was. Like, like a rash of festivals. Like all these festivals in Florida started screening Spare Me. And I was like, wow, like, we've been discovered in Europe and in Florida. And, and, I, and I could only attribute it to, like, going there and screening the film. I realized Floridians had this, like, really different sense of humor. But the cool thing that happened in Avignon, France, was Sparney ended up winning the top prize of the festival. Well, there are two top prizes, one for a French film and one for an American film. We ended up getting the top prize, which was a $20,000 um, cash prize. With, with Kodak's help, we ended up um, using that money to make my next feature film, a picture called Rhythm Thief. You take your eyes off me for a second. You do and I'll kill you. Watch me. Rhythm Thief was kind of like going back to what I did with Apartment 8. It was like basically one guy in a Lower East Side apartment. And I knew I had an apartment in an apartment building because I knew the landlord. And we wrote this script. I collaborated on it with a buddy of mine. And it, and it had started turning into a comedy. And I remember taking the script and, and uh, I remember just completely tearing it apart and just taking it back to this very, very simple, very basic story, um, which all took place within five blocks of this apartment I had. On every inch of every street, every block in the city, some at least one person's died. Some heavy shit, G. One day I'm gonna find myself lying in the street with my blood pumping out of my body. And I'll look up and I'll see people walk by. I'm just something they saw on the way to work. We were transferring John Horn's music off audio cassette tapes. Remember those? Yeah. Transferring those to uh, 16 millimeter mag stock, lining them up with the film. 
I think I raised about another 25 or 30 grand to pay for the mix and the print. And I remember we started it out small, like Long Island Film Festival, and then a couple other smaller ones, just to kind of get the feel of how it was playing. And then it got accepted to Toronto. And I remember I was standing in the lobby of the theater and this guy came running out of the theater saying, where's your film played? And I could have said, well, Long Island Film Festival and a couple others that we played at, but I didn't. I said, nowhere. <laughs> and he said, I'm from the Sundance Film Festival. It was Christian Gaines. And he ran over to the payphones because in those days to make a call, he had to go to a payphone. I guess he was calling the guys here in L.A. They accepted the film, which was... Uh, that was exciting. And then when we went to Sundance with Rhythm Thief, I remember um, one, of, one of the very good PR firms in New York had called me on the phone. We really want to do the PR for your film Rhythm Thief at Sundance. And I remember going uptown to meet with them. And, and then they said, we love your film. We're committed to it. And we want to do the PR on your movie. And it's going to cost you $12,000. And I remember, like, well, I guess you guys really love it. <laughs> but Rhythm Thief ended up getting a jury prize at the Sundance Film Festival. An agent I met out of Toronto, a guy named Paul Schwartzman, really interesting cat, who's an independent agent. Paul had called me on the phone and said, hey, I think Martin Scorsese would really like your Rhythm Thief. Can I give him a VHS tape? And I said, sure. I remember I was I was here, I was in California in Santa Monica at the time because I'd, I'd gotten signed with William Morris Agency and I had a management company working with me and I had a lawyer, all the, you know, all this like big reality check stuff was happening. And that was when I started shooting my little Hollywood. I had Matt Sean Andrews, and we started shooting My Little Hollywood. So it was funny. What came out of making Rhythm Thief was a desire to start shooting. I had a high eight camera, and uh, what was going on around me for the first time in my life was a lot of people were talking to me about making films. A lot of people were saying, you can do anything you want talking about making movies, companies wanting to make movies and giving me money. But it, it was, a, it was a, a strange time because nobody was actually committing and giving me money to make these movies. So um, I just didn't understand how the whole Hollywood thing worked or how the whole... So I just started shooting. He said, why do you stop? And I said, you know what? You know, I just, I respect you too much to do this. Ooh. <laughs> and then what happened? <laughs> she called me a fucking liar and left. The phone rang. And, um, and it was Mar Marty Scorsese. And he, and he said, you made a terrific film. And uh, what do you want to do next? And I had that script I'd been writing at American Express, kicked in the head. Um, and I, 
I said, well, I got this script. It's a New York story. He said, well, why don't you come to New York and let's, let's talk about it. July of 96, we were shooting my first studio picture, Kicked in the Head, with movie stars, and it was my first union experience. So it couldn't have been more different. So I went from a $35,000 movie with a very small crew, very uh, personal, to a $3.8 million union picture. I was in a guild, and I had a union, it was a union shoot. I remember showing up to the set and uh, looking down the block, as far as I could see were these big trailers and all these people I didn't know. It's a beautiful day. Santa Monica, the jewel of Southern California, we call it. It's another beautiful day in Southern California. Santa Monica. The living is easy, the rent is cheap, food is great. You know, to be honest, I don't know why the hell I ended up landing here in Southern California. But it's been good to get some distance on New York, you know, you love, what is it? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's a pretty sleepy town, Santa Monica. Oh, we got ourselves a sunset. Holy smokes. Look at that. Wow, that's a good one, huh? And looking forward to getting back into the real swing of it. Back into the major leagues. And I feel like I've really got some things to say now and some films to make. Yeah.